we're just going to talk about Mothman the whole time. Yes. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh shit! I need to change shirts. All right. Well, we'll be okay. I, I'm so I'm I'm so on board. We'll talk about the shirt. Hello, dear listener. This is MJ Benias, the host of Fringe Network's Alien State. I'm providing you an interesting little bonus episode. For those of you who have been following my work, I recently had the pleasure to talk to Matt, Ben, and Noel from Stuff They Don't Want You To Know, which is an amazing podcast uh, you can find wherever you get your podcasts. And I was on their show and we had a great time. And since we covered a lot of the same things, I wanted to have them on my show, Alien State. So for your listening pleasure, I present to you this bonus episode. The guys from Stuff They Don't Want You To Know Matt, Ben, and Noel, and me, talking about all things weird and strange. Thanks very much for listening. So, guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast uh, today for this awesome bonus episode of Alien State. Let's just start for the people who have never heard of your show, though I doubt that that's a thing, but you never know. Can you introduce yourselves, tell us who you are, uh, and, and what your podcast is about? Sure. Yeah. Hey, I'm Matt Frederick. I am one of the co-creators of Stuff They Don't Want You To Know, which was originally a video series. And uh, we made that for iTunes video back in the day. So exciting. Back when uh, iTunes had video charts and all that. Uh, And then it turned into a YouTube show and then transitioned into a podcast. So that stretched from about 2000, late 2009 when we were in production uh, up until 2016 is when we kind of stopped doing that series. But in 2013, we started making the podcast, Stuff They Don't Want You To Know. And it really, it's a show, the IP, I suppose you would call it, the concept of it grew out of just Ben's fascination and my fascination with stuff we couldn't prove, but things that we wanted to delve into. I'm Noel Brown. Uh, I've been a co-host of Stuff They Don't Want You To Know for God... I guess since about 2014-ish, 15, I don't know. I started off as the producer of the show, editing and doing little segments here and there. And then uh, they turned me into a real boy, a real podcast boy. And then I joined the uh, the team, the proper team, in front of the mic. So uh, I'm Ben Bolin. I'm a, a host, uh, author, and executive producer here at iHeartMedia. Our, our parent company and uh, Matt and I, as he said, uh, started, started the show completely convinced we were going to get fired within two weeks for applying critical thinking to conspiracy theories, allegations of the paranormal, true stories of government and corporate cover-ups. And we expanded, somehow not being fired, uh, through various acquisitions. Uh, We, when we entered the world of podcasting, uh, we also expanded our cast. And together we sort of uh, three amigos did into <laughs> into what we do today. And, you know, um, the most interesting thing about it for us, MJ, I think has always been that we are never running out of things to explore. Right. <laughs> right. And, and like, I, I feel like when we talk to you on our show, there's a similar fascination with this stuff. And we, we, all, we all just kind of fell into doing it as, oh, well, well, let's try this. Maybe this will work. Maybe, you know, this would be a viable thing. But, you know, being very skeptical of that. And then all of a sudden it just becomes, oh, hey, people will pay us to to explore weird things. Cool. 
it's it's such a it's, <laughs> it's such a weird line of work, right? I mean, I mean, somebody you know came to me and said, "Hey, listen, we want you to take apart this UFO story for us. Can you like, you know, can 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 you create a show and do this?" And that's that's like what happened. And it's the same thing for your podcast. You have this just. There's like this desire out there for all of those weird stories that exist, whether they're conspiracy theories or paranormal stories. There's like this desire to go into them and start peeling back the layers and trying to like see through the fog of of of, of what's real and what's not, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know, like I find it incredibly compelling, but I also find it interesting that like literally it yeah. can do a job. Yeah. We, and right? we were we were around we're we're old heads now, MG. We were around before podcasts were really a thing. Uh, and for us, as Matt said, it comes from a personal lifelong fascination. Uh, Matt and I have uh, very different backgrounds, but there's a lot of Venn diagram there in terms of the things that we care about. And, you know, over the course of the show, we've approached the concept of conspiracy theories, which is kind of a dirty word these days. We've approached it both as a folkloric phenomenon. That's something we talked about when you came on stuff they don't want you to know. And then in the course of applying critical thinking to things that are sometimes called conspiracy theories, we've often found a grain of truth in many cases, which is something that happens, honestly, with a lot of folklore from ages past. Uh, Perhaps one of the biggest things we try to impart to people is that it's worth the time to ask a question. And all too often in an age of incessant, ubiquitous media and all this flood of information coming at the average person, all too often the term conspiracy theory becomes a kind of thought-terminating cliche. If you hear something described as a conspiracy theory, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be the idea that um, the Queen of England is half alien, for some reason doesn't want you to know, or the Smithsonian is covering up Bigfoot. For, for again, some reason, that you hear that as a conspiracy theory, and you're like, okay, well, that's ridiculous, slow news day. But then you can also hear the term applied to very real things. Like once upon a time, the idea that banks like HSBC were laundering money for drug cartels was also dismissed as a conspiracy theory. Yet it was absolutely true. It was an absolute conspiracy. So we, um, we endeavor to interrogate those stories to find the fact the fiction and the sometimes i would say uh although i hesitate to use the phrase matt sometimes we find the liminal space between oh boy the liminal space we love that word Uh, look i'm gonna break down really quickly the craziest one that you mentioned this concept that there are lizard people somehow Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) running countries or Mm -hmm. in the illuminati or something when we break down something like that, it's really, I think, illuminating for us to jump through and imagine it as a bunch of people viewing a monarchy from afar, mm. right? Like, we've, uh, most people have never been a part of a royal bloodline or a monarchy or, you know, anything like that. And we don't understand it, right? And there's a lot of, there's a lot of misunderstanding that exists in the outside. And there's also a lot of observations, you know, about nature and how it functions. And then, you know, all of these, all of these concepts we find kind of roll up together into this weird sushi that becomes one of these theories. And I think breaking that sushi apart into its constituent parts is 
one of my one of my favorite things to do, and I, I hope it's like something that other people enjoy doing. I'm going to dive into the liminal space with you guys a bit, and I want to kind of understand like when you dive into these conspiracy theories, it, it sort of takes you down maybe a dark path of like human the human condition, right? Like we we are generally sort of by nature like un- untrusting of, of certain people. We we create stories that literally turn them into reptilian aliens um, for some reason, um, no matter how outlandish it sounds. So so do you find that there's like this weird kind of, I don't want to use the word anxiety, but just like this weird darkness where you're like, listen, we're, we're taking apart these conspiracy theories. We're looking at them. We're examining them. But we're also always kind of coming to a very similar conclusion that for some reason, humanity's really like fucked up. And we, for some reason like engage in these conspiracy theories often for like bad reasons and and for really like heinous reasons i'd love to know like where your mind goes to sometimes when you when you walk down this path like the the darkness it's a fantastic question mj it's important to realize that outside of disinfo agents which are a very real and very successful thing most people when they hold their beliefs, whatever they are, whether they think Burger King is better than, you know, um, Timmy's or whether they think uh, hockey is better than cricket or whether they think the JFK story is bogus, people aren't seeing themselves as a villain when they think these things. They think they are a good person acting with the absolute best amount of information they have. And our brains are hardwired to find yes and facts not things that make you reevaluate your original position. I think that's where the dark side lies, but you, you won't see a ton of people making a, some kind of conspiracy theory or modern folklore where they say, yes, in fact, I'm the bad guy. Hi, it's me, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, on the flip side of that, there is a certain amount of armor that I think we build up, you know, cognitively uh, doing a show like this, uh, at, le- at least I, I try, I, I do, I don't try to, I think it just happens, um, that allows me to live in a chaotic world uh, and be the father of a kid who's also living in a chaotic world where so many things are, you know, up in the air and, and in question and it's hard to really know who to believe a lot of the time. And, you know, people always ask us, like, when you do these topics day in and day out, does it make you completely paranoid and distrustful, you know, all the time. And and to me, I almost take an opposite approach, uh, almost like a defense mechanism um, where I am almost uh, pathologically optimistic um, in, in some ways, because so many of these conspiracy theories that we dig into, we find to be a little bit thin, uh, though, especially the ones that people kind of dream up to justify their biases or hatreds or whatever it might be. But it's not the conspiracy theories that we have to worry about. It's the people that dream them up and what their uh, intentions are, you know, and, and what that means for a world kind of spinning out of control. And we're also existing in something we, we keep consistently pointing out. We're all in these bubbles of information. And, and it's so we are so separated into our own little bubbles. And, you know, we, we only see what the algorithms decide we see based upon what we click on and sometimes what we say near our phones. That's a, that's a theory, uh, but I'm pretty sure it's true. Uh, but yep. you know, yeah. just be careful. Uh- <laughs> Alexa, are you going to and like, right? People hate when I say that on the podcast because sometimes yeah. Alexa responds. 
Well, but we're caught in these feedback loops, right? So if you go, if you start to go down a path, right, in with some like a specific belief system, whether you know politically it's motivated in one way, or you're motivated by tarot cards, right, or something, you know, you can go down that path, and then you'll find yourself so deeply immersed in some of the the new age stuff, some of the maybe the Wiccan stuff, you'll just get, you'll find yourself in that world now. And um, when you're inundated with so much information that is similar and there's so many people around you who are yes-anding you about those things, um, you're, I, I swear, like our brains, as you said, Ben, our hardware alters. It changes a little bit and we start to view the world differently. And I just, you know, I feel like there, it's not a, there's not an angry, mean person out there writing down conspiracy theories of and you know trying to disseminate them i think it's a bunch of people in these bubbles that are looking they're have they're trying to identify threats as you said ben going back to the hardware those patterns find those and then find someone to blame uh, or mm -hmm. something to blame yeah humans love a uh, love a face right humans love a face on an issue whatever the issue is uh, that's part of the reason why celebrities uh, are kind of the new demigods of the current era i would also add that a thing people don't often talk about as much as they should is that conspiracy theories the sort of uh, folklore or however however mass media wants to group it it's ultimately in some ways a comfort because it says there is someone in charge they're simply villainous instead of what i suspect to be the truth there's no one group of people who runs the world there are many groups of many powerful people who do think they should be in charge of more stuff in general so we can see why uh, certain ideas of a structure a cause a cabal an overarching plan would function as a lighthouse as cold as a comfort as that might be so I, I'm curious because I've noticed this weird, and I'm, I, I want to know if like you guys are the conspiracy experts. I mean, I've noticed that what has sort of occurred, and I think it's probably because of social media and the internet, but conspiracy theories have kind of like entered like this melting pot where if you are engaged or if you if you are active in let's say like one conspiratorial subculture or world right you participate in one you're you're going to be exposed to all of them because they all like they like most of them a lot of them like they, it's almost like they all kind of exist in one big pot so if you kind of dip your ladle into the pot you're not just going to pull out like i don't know your crystal worshiping interest but it's also going to come with like aliens and anti-vax and um microchipping people and like new world order like it's you're, you're going to pull up the ladle and be like oh look at all this cool shit in here and you're going to start like you know rooting around and finding what appeals to you and what doesn't based upon cultural baggage you know sociological reality of, of where you live and and geography whatever um you know like, do you find that's that's the case where where you have one conspiracy theory, but it, it's always going to link people to a whole bunch of other conspiracies. Absolutely. The modern experience, learning stuff that seems somehow uh, occluded, is now uh, very similar to eating at a buffet. Or you go to you go to Chipotle, right? That's what the encounter of conspiratorial thought is often in the age of un unending information, right? You make your own burrito, sort of. You might, you might have a pre-existing bias, 
against something <laughs> and that's why you don't have that's like the guacamole you don't get right or you might have I a pre more of a love. quesadilla guy though ben. i am i am i'm just trying to to be universal here uh chipotle it's will it's make it's a quesadilla by the way it's just not on the menu it's all about the rapport right but uh but but i think that's i mean i think you're right way leads on to way in these explorations and that's one of the um that is an opportunity for bad faith actors there's a lot of bang for your buck in disinformation and so you can see evidence of russian disinfo farms or uh troll armies in china the U.S. has them as well. It'd be naive to pretend otherwise. Who can find people who are just a few steps away from thinking what you want them to think, right? And maybe doing what you want them to do. And all you have to do is agree with them at first. Like Matt said, just a little bit of yes and, right? It goes a long way, just like sesame oil. And then you, you just put that in there and then you go, uh, yes, right? Yes, this QAnon stuff is true. And what do you think about CERN? You know what I mean? And then, oh, boom, you're off to the races. I just want to give you a, a personal experience watching the ladling happen, MJ. And it's when, a little while back, I joined Clubhouse, the, the uh, I don't the know what you call it, yeah. the audio social network. Um, yeah. And I started trying to dig into to a lot of these bigger groups that are talking about things that we might cover and just like, what are people talking about? What are people interested in? What are, you know, some potential topics for the future? And when you get into one of these rooms, one of these bigger rooms that's on a very specific subject, like it could be anything. Generally it's been, you know, UAP that's been a very, very popular topic lately. Yeah. Um, but inside that conversation, it always within that you know, room, that single room that you're in goes to anti-vax stuff, uh, but, but out pretty outlandish claims, not just, you know, the science isn't out, well, you know, the full science isn't here yet. Let's be cautious in how we approach this. It's like, no, this is straight up Bill Gates and microchips and all that. And then that will, you know, lead into something else that is uh, equally outlandish and goes into magical stuff, like actual magic and casting spells and things. And it just kind of is this I don't know. It, it like it's a soup, man. You're totally right with a ladle. It's a stew. Uh, sometimes there are too. It's, like, it's kind of a cosmic gumbo. But there are too know? many yeah, cooks. Cosmic gumbo. And they're ruining the broth. Oh too man. Too many cooks. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to jump to something that we did a lot in Alien State, which is we started every episode with with we we sort of fondly called the the monster story, um, and and I want to know what like, from each of you like what's your favorite monster story. I mean, it's one that we've actually covered for me on this show and on a show that Ben and I do together called Ridiculous History. Um, and it's, I believe, I'm, hopefully I'm pronouncing this French right. The Beast of Gévaudan, I believe. Gévaudan. It was, yeah, Gévaudan. We, we really uh, leaned into it on the Ridiculous History episode. But it's a, you know, it was this this believed to be supernatural beast that was murdering young women in in France um, in the what 1700s Ben I'm, I'm, I'm gonna get that wrong but uh, in the long ago times um, uh, think of French milkmaids in the countryside being found with their guts hanging out uh, and it was eventually adapted into a a bizarre and wonderful uh, film that sort of combines fantasy 
you know, the occult and like kung fu stylings called uh, the Brotherhood of the Wolf, yes. um, which I think Ben and I both are big fans of. Um, starring who's that guy? Vincent Cassell, mm. who was a big, massive smoke show of a French movie star. He's in it, and it's just a really, really cool, weird, not necessarily good, but great. Hey. <laughs> I've seen <laughs> it, but also <laughs> yeah, it's terrific. Like, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's terrific, but it's also like pure schlock. Oh, yeah. I'd love it, but anyway, um, but yeah, the the whole deal was it was this. I think it was. We never really determined it. If we, in the movie, they make it look like it was some kind of a, like a Bengal tiger or something. But I think the theory was there were all kinds of like hunting parties sent out by the king to catch it, and people, you know, doing like lookalikes and mounting these, you know, massive beast-like wolves and stuffing them and presenting them to the king as though they'd captured the beast. But then the kill, the killings continued. And I like that story because it sort of has an explanation. It, it, it demonstrates how people's minds go crazy w in the absence of an explanation um, and how far people will go to explain the unexplainable. Um, and then when the unexplainable is ultimately explained, there's a way of explaining away the atrocities people have committed <laughs> in the name of the thing they thought was unexplainable, if, if that makes any sense whatsoever. So the belief is that it was a tiger of some sort, like someone's like lost pet, or, or was it a guy who was pretending? Like, like it, It's a lion. Uh, in, or implied to be. This is a spoiler for the film. It's implied to be a lion, um, but there's also, I don't know, like, Noel, you're absolutely right. This is a hyena, possibly. Ha possibly right? a, a very large hyena, but the you don't ever really learn uh, its identity, though it is heavily implied in Brotherhood of the Wolf, but um, part of that is because there are still there's still a lot of speculation about what the beast actually was and it it's an example right. of an outbreak of hysteria as you would call it um and you know it comes at a time in the seven in like the 1760s in this area of the world uh, attacks right. by animals especially wolves were were a huge problem and it it sound it might be something to laugh at nowadays for a lot of people in the West, but if you, maybe the best way to put it is if you have been to a part of the world where stray dogs roam in packs, then just imagine they're wolves. People were scared for a reason. I, I think that's an excellent choice, Noel. I um, love Brotherhood of the Wolf. Let's go to West Virginia, 1966. Come on. Let's do it. Let's talk All about right. it. Uh, there's, I think the story originally began, you guys will have to correct me if I'm wrong here. The story originally began when there was a report from, I think a couple who were driving in mm -hmm. their car and it's they two were, couples. Yeah. okay, okay. Two I know at least, yeah. oh, there we go. Okay. So I know there was a report that there was this huge, like 10 foot tall thing, creature, man, maybe that, or maybe, or it was a tall man with wings that were 10 feet. I forget exactly mm -hmm. how they described yeah, it. Yeah. 10 foot wings. Yeah. Huge freaking thing with wings that they saw and it had these very specific like uh reflector like eyes like these red eyes and you know they just happened to see this thing and then once that initial i don't do you guys know if that official report went into a local newspaper or something and then the the other reports followed yeah so to all the listeners of alien state 
Um, I just wanted to talk about Mothman, and we never <laughs> got the ability to. Um, I remember when I first pitched the show, my plan was to go to West Virginia, but they, the, the producers and all their wisdom said no. Um, so now I'm using this bonus episode to talk about Mothman. <laughs> yes. For fuck's sakes. Okay. Yeah. So so they they went to the police and they filed a report with the police, and then they went to the press. And, okay. And then that's when shit took off. Yeah, because everybody started seeing it, right? Or at least multiple Lots reports. The Point Pleasant Register published in November 16th, 1966, kind of the first to print story of the couple's encounter. Uh, this this is something that we see in other, uh, I, I call them like blow-up sightings or viral sightings, right? Uh men in black enters the public consciousness and all of a sudden everyone's encountered them it gets reported and then everybody around point pleasant is seeing it even though their descriptions don't always agree yeah but the it's what happens in conspiracy theories and unsolved mysteries in these things a seed gets planted a concept and you see red eyes somewhere like up in the tree line maybe you know even if it's low in a tree but it's you know, uh, along the horizon, you then may imagine that there is a huge creature out there that's as tall as that tree with those eyes, uh, even if it's a heron or, you know, a, a specific species of owl that's out there. But but how do you guys look? How do you explain the silver bridge? That actually happened, right? The bridge collapsed the next year or like not long after. Yeah, it was it was. Yeah, it was like within like within 365 days or something it was like i think it actually was something like a couple days before the initial mothman sighting or something the bridge collapses so for all those who don't know anything about mothman point pleasant virginia um borders i think ohio somewhere in ohio right some town mm, mm, yeah idaho correct or something i don't know i don't know i'm canadian I, american states you're don't matter nailing it man yeah like <laughs> listen real places call them provinces not states but anyway you americans so so there's a bridge that runs between west virginia and ohio and it was the silver bridge and like literally almost to the day that bridge collapses and like it's it's like one of the worst bridge tragedies in american history it's like like dozens of people die which 46 is, yeah Oh, oh, wow. Okay, so more than dozens, multiple yeah. dozens of people die. I shouldn't be laughing. I apologize. Multiple dozens of people die. And Mothman takes the rap. Yeah. And actually, I am wrong. It occurred after. The first sighting was in November. It, the Silver Bridge fell near Christmas. It was like December 12th or something. So okay. anyway, I'm off. I was, it was a few days after, several days after, I guess. But moot point. Um, people then start seeing Mothman at like other tragic horrible incidents like there are people who you can go on google right now and type in september 9 11 and mothman and people will have claims that they were at 9 11 they saw the buildings come down and they saw mothman flying around one of the buildings like before the plane hit and stuff like that like you can find all of this stuff you can see this for pretty much any catastrophe you can go on like the web and just find people making claims um that that like Mothman exists around all tragedies as if he is some sort of harbinger of death. Whoa. Mm. That's uh, crazy. Hey, I know. To your point, MJ, I think it's incredibly important to note that uh, despite the hoaxers who are real, there are many people who are not trying to spin a yarn in their opinion. They genuinely believe this and that um, that UFO they saw 
you know, just an unidentified flying object, right? You talked about this in Alien State. That UFO they saw just just clicked somehow in their memory banks, and they thought Mothman, right? The Harbinger, the storm crow of disaster. And this um, this is part of the positive feedback loop that is created because it's a way to understand things that would otherwise be painful uh, or difficult to understand. I got a new theory. Ooh, hit it. Mo- Mothman is an interdimensional investigative journalist, and uh, he or she, they are showing up at all of these disasters just to document them for posterity and like to understand what happened from, you know, because you can't, you oh. if you're interdimensional in that way and time doesn't work for you in the same way, you can't just experience it. Everybody can't travel back and experience it. That so was, Mothman uh, just... That was a plot point from the Loki television series. TVA, baby. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have not it, seen yeah, this. Yeah, there, there's a whole... They, they do a thing where they seek refuge in uh, alternate universes or whatever that are about to experience an end-of-the-world event. Mm-hmm. And that is the, the, how they're able to hide from the interdimensional police. Man. I, yeah, I also have another theory. Just this will add on to... Uh, so Point Pleasant, if you have visited, is not the biggest place. It's a town. The people are very nice, right, and very tolerant of weird tourists, let's say. Uh, but it is also an economic force in the town now. There is a Mothman Museum. There is a super saucy smoke show sculpture of Mothman right out in the he's middle got a of fine town. Fine ass. That, that. <laughs> he does those. Yeah, those cheeks slap, and he's got hey, like. let's not let's abs. not make a sex object. Let's not make a sex object out of all right, Mothman. All right, sorry, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> that's no, not just, us I'm doing just, it. <laughs> it was the sculptor, the original. That, sculptor. I'm just admiring that glistening six pack too. Yeah, good I'm lord. I'm just admiring just, oh. Bob Roach's work. He's the sculptor. Uh, but case in point, every year, thousands of people go to Point Pleasant for the Mothman Festival. And it's similar to the way that the good people of Roswell, New Mexico, aren't going to turn turn away a tourist dollar, right? Uh, and this means that the local area is incentivized to propagate stories or theories, even if they personally uh, do not believe them to be true. So we can't... We can't separate that. Um, it, it's it's tough to tell. Uh, I, I think the search for what actually happened for a lot of people investigating that story ends up telling them more about themselves than it does about the actual events. Yeah, this this comes up um, a bit. I, I've written about this before. In the case of the Roswell incident, which I agree is very similar to West Virginia in the sense of you have this event that has been monetized by the community and is really like often like the lifeblood, like the lifeblood of Point Pleasant, West Virginia is the Mothman Festival. Roswell as well has a festival and and, and Roswell's tourism is really what's keeping that town alive. Like there's nothing else there. Um, what occurs though is because of that, because of the mythological kind of aspects of the event have, have so intertwined with the, the monetary and the financial aspects of and the needs of the town whatever like the root cause whatever like that little kernel of truth is so wrapped up within the mythology and within the the financial need that you'll never be able to like peel away all of the layers to actually get to the kernel because it's like the roots have like like merged into the kernel and have formed it like i don't know if you saw the 
the show um, Raised by Wolves on HBO where, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, somebody turns into like a tree, right? And like the, the, her body gets like ripped up and like the roots grow through her and you just, you can't get her out of there. She's in there now. Like she is, she is the tree now. I feel like the mythology of Roswell is Roswell now. There's no way to, to undo that. There's no way that an investigator can go in and be like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to solve this Roswell case because you'll never be able to peel the bark off of the root thing of what's the inside of a tree called whatever you know trees are stupid but you'll be able to like pull that stuff apart to get to like what's actually at the, the what, root of the, it all the, the rings you know the yeah. rings yeah, dendrochronology the, the forensic yeah. exploration of trees sure <laughs> it's just a word i don't get to use often unrelated though a fantasy and or a horror trope that i always find very disturbing is what you just described when a tree grows through a person and like skewers them and then they become this like living weird tree zombie uh i find that incredibly uh unsettling mm-hmm. it's because mm-hmm. the trees have been here longer than we have and they know yeah. something we yeah. don't right they know a hell of a lot more than we have. humans are fads what if trees are all actually sentient and moving just very slowly you know like in certain directions I don't know anybody old enough to answer that question now, so I'm going to assume it. I'm just going to mess with my own head. It's like uh, something I read many years ago where they said, hey, what if rocks are all soft, but they stiffen up when you touch them? And I think about that uh, every time I touch a rock. That's a fun thought experiment. And, and one of us had to do it, but there's a theory I, I read about uh, Elden Ring, uh, the uh, nerd video game that we are all huge fans of, that these poisonous plants that exist in the world that are massive, they've been there longer than humans, and they actually deserve to be there, and the humans are the invasive species. And so that's why anytime you get near them, they blast you with poison and kill you dead. And do plants communicate? Oh, that's another thing. But uh, there's without... so many well, mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, mushrooms. Right. Have you seen that fantastic fungi documentary mm-hmm. talking about the neural network that fungi creates? Oh, yeah. you know, underground that just mm-hmm. travels across huge distances. Mm-hmm. I believe that stuff one million percent. Absolutely. That uh, fungi are these harbingers of like the psychedelic kind of consciousness of the earth and of nature, and and there is this like cycle that they participate in. I think all that stuff is true. I feel bad whenever I cook them with my steak. Writers like H.P. Lovecraft de- depict alien species as possibly fungi-based. Uh, humanity doesn't know very much about fungi even today. Uh, with with all this, I, I've been kind of waiting in the wings here because I have a very difficult time picking a single favorite of anything. Uh, Matt and Noel know this to be true. Uh, but for the sake of, for the sake of, just uh, showing the panoply of what we mean by monsters, I would say one of my favorite monsters and the creator of many successful conspiracies is a real-life guy, the father of public relations, Edward Bernays. And it's strange for me to call him a monster because I do hold immense objective respect for his work. However, the man is responsible for many horrific things. Um, he, he's, a, he's responsible for some fun stuff, like why people in the West eat bacon for breakfast and so on. Uh, but he uh, is also responsible for things like uh, drumming up support for U.S. orchestrated coups in foreign countries uh, and invasions of places to the benefit of corporations. So I'm only pointing that out to say that, yes, in a very... In a, in a very dangerous way, there are real monsters. Again, they don't think they're monsters. They just think that they're uh, 
the main character of their own story because one thing that conspiracy theories can teach us or an analysis thereof is that we are ultimately the stories we tell ourselves. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, sometimes just thinking you know better than everyone else uh, and, and, and what you believe is the ultimate truth is an act of, of monstrosity and megalomania in and of itself if you can't be reasoned with. Um, and, and no matter what people tell you or what you see to the contrary, you will not be moved. That in and of itself is its own kind of super villainy. I think Ben's wrong. Mothman's cooler. He definitely has a bigger six pack than Bernays. That's I would take Mothman over Bernays, hundred percent. And on a one on one, Mothman would wax that guy. No contest. (laughs) Um, Matt, I think I just I getting to the real monsters concept, right? And and I when I think about stories of, I mean, gosh, it's, it's folklore. It is folklore. It goes back hundreds and hundreds of years but you think about stories of little children who are duped into going with somebody or who are you know they go to the the house because there's candy it's made out of candy i'm going to go there that's a great story uh and it's meant to you know perhaps scare a child you tell it to a child as a cautionary tale but think about in real life i i think back to uh i want to say it was like 2010 2011 maybe when the boston globe does investigate uh does an investigation into the catholic church right and then mm-hmm. we're we as a society are confronted with like real monsters, like yes. a whole large group of them that are operating, you know, in the open, and they're protected by a major organization. And you're just like, like how how do we cognitively deal with that, right? Especially mm-hmm. when it's an organization that we put our trust in, our faith in. There are these real terrible things that it's very difficult to grapple with uh, when you're just sitting in your house thinking about it. 100%. Could the monster story act as a sort of uh, almost like like a conspiracy theory does, right? It it, it creates this sort of uh, caricature of of what evil is. Hundred percent monster as metaphor, right? Because one of the um, one of the great early advances of the human species was the discovery and deployment of metaphor, right? Of analogy, of uh, tales that encapsulate the truth in a way that fits the cultural framework of the time, right? If you look at, um, if you look at stories of um, not just the nature of evil, but just to outline this process, um, if you look at stories of things like dragons or great worms with a Y or uh, sea monsters, or you look at stories of vampires, which I'll just pick as my personal favorite monster fictional for now um, because they have so many superpowers the only thing you'll really miss is garlic but if you like if you look at these stories you will in each of those each like um, each mass collection of this folklore you will find it used at some point to explain a real historical event often ancient right there are saints who are known for fighting dragons. And it's quite possible, without pulling a specific example, to posit, based on our knowledge of the time, to posit that the dragon, the villain, the monster in that case, functions in some way as a stand-in for a very real, very human, uh, very evil institution or individual. I think that's a one-on-one argument, you know, and you see it through the great game of telephone, it gets transformed, like Dante set up 
the what people think of as the the modern architecture of hell right or the go-to architecture of hell but a lot of that was him scoring political points or objecting to things that he found both very human and very evil and so he sort of made the human concept of hell in the modern day the same way that the coca-cola company made the modern concept of santa claus I'm just saying sometimes these legends become treated as facts and at the at a different point, you know, at some far flung point. What's the difference? I always uh, really not enjoyed, but appreciated the kind of metaphor of vampires uh, for addiction. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, like the way people can become monsters through their appetites and addictions. And I'm sure there's other ways to look at it, but I feel like that's sort of like a glaring kind of like surfacey one that I think is really successful um, because sometimes people can be good people and then they go down a wrong path uh, and then it can turn them into something other. And and uh, and wholly unclean. Oh, like uh, another example to, to add on what you're saying, Noel. Another example would be an excellent book by an author named Matt Ruff, Lovecraft Country. What the author Ruff does, and this was later loosely adapted into a wonderful HBO show. Uh, what Ruff does is he takes the ancient elder evils of the Lovecraft mythos and has them function hand in hand with the ancient evil of racism and discrimination. And there he, I, I would argue, uh, there the author, Matt Ruff, is kind of showing us a little bit of the machinery of these evolutions, right? These stand-ins, vampires for addiction, ancient evil for racism. And I, again, I would be surprised if there is any monster that you can't find some sort of connection like that. You were making a fantastic point, MJ. I feel like I'm just agreeing with you and taking too long to do so. It's, it's fine, because <laughs> this actually leads me to like a, 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 a final kind of place I want to get to. And, and since we're talking about monsters, since we're here, we're talking about all this, um, what then is the stand-in? that the alien represents. I mean, you know, we we live in the 21st century, we have advanced technology, and now, you know, 70 years of, of UFOs, we have sort of this notion of this alien entity. However you want, whether it's extraterrestrial, interdimensional, doesn't matter. This alien other that seems to be flying Tic Tacs around our airspace, I'd love to know, sort of, let's, let's philosophize what is the stand-in here. Doesn't that depend on whether it's benevolent or invasive or, or you know, uh, aggressive? Yeah, that, that's exactly... I think people... That's yeah. exactly what I get to, Noel. If you don't mind, I'll expand on that really fast. No, no, please, that's exactly... Yeah, just pose it the I, MJ, I'd love to hear from you. What I've been observing recently, just in discourse on this, is that there is a deep desire for someone to, to help humanity, to save humanity from itself that is outside because there's this feeling that humans, we can't do it on our own. We we seem to have this self-destructive vein that we just keep going down and we just keep, keep chasing. And we need some outside influence to come down and help save us all from ourselves. That's at least what I'm seeing recently, but I don't know. I don't know what it would be. I don't know what the stand-in would be other than like a religious savior figure that is more secular than something that's written in an ancient book. 
one-to-one, beat-for-beat stories of encounters with what modern society calls aliens are identical with what earlier societies would call spirits or the fey folk or the hidden folk or, or, or jinn. You know, it, it varies uh, via region, culture, and time. But I would say that in many cases, you can see these things standing in for the... Um, powerful events that people cannot themselves as institutions or as individuals control. So child mortality, huge thing, right? You look at Western Europe, the story of changelings explores child mortality in a culturally approachable way. And if you look at uh, modern UFO sightings, just like you're saying with the ladle, with Whaley, not away, or the Chipotle make your own burrito thing, which I'm doubling down on, then what you see is that people are connecting this idea of an alien, something inexplicable in the sky, with their own, um, their own way to explain something that troubles or inspires them. I'm afraid of nuclear Armageddon, says one person. The UFOs that are reported around nuclear sites, therefore, agree with me. And now I have a uh, very powerful ally who is reinforcing my worldview. That's that. That's what's so interesting because they're kind of um, mercurial, right? And I think Noel, you make an excellent point. Matt, you make an excellent point about how the their motivations, their stand-ins for motivations, and that's why some people would be see them in a belligerent way. Some people would ascribe to them benevolence. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. Or I don't know, man, maybe it's all Freudian, right? Maybe they're all like a representation of space dicks. I, I'm not a psychologist. Well, with that, we I think we end on space dicks, uh, which is an appropriate place to end for uh, this bonus episode. Space, space, space dicks is what the uh, trailer park boys would call astronauts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, listen, guys, this has been uh, an amazing conversation. I, I truly appreciate it. Um, thanks very much for, for coming on Alien State. And, and I look forward to coming on uh, stuff they don't want you to know because I had a blast the, the last time. It was, it was terrific. Absolutely. We did, too. It was a great conversation. and hope to do it again soon. Thanks for having us. Alien State is hosted by me, MJ Benias. It's reported by me and Casey Georgie. Produced by Casey Georgie. Our associate producer is Stephanie Aguilar. Written by Grant Irving, Casey Georgie, and myself. Editing by Lizzie Jacobs and Megan Dietrich. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Our production coordinator is Lily Hamley. Music by Nolan Schneider. Sound design by Grant Irving and Sam Baer engineered by Sam Baer. Our executive producers are Grant Irving, Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Anthony Lapp. Special thanks to Pallavi Kotamasu, Steve Ackerman, Charlie Adore, and Danielle Jones-Wesley. Thanks to our legal team, Nimra Azmi and Allison Shari for Davis Wright Tremaine. <laughs>